This message was shared from the pulpit at Good News Baptist Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org. My dear wife listens to a lot of Christian programs on YouTube and prophecy, and she writes down some very interesting things for me for which I'm very grateful. Uh, This particular card that she wrote down for me uh, comes from a broadcast from uh, Tucker Carlson and he was reporting something interesting that I thought would tie into chapter 3 and chapter 6. Isabel Vaughn Spruce, this is very recent, arrested while praying silently near an abortion center in England, Birmingham, violating a public space protection order. She was not protesting or carrying a sign or praying out loud or talking to anyone. In England, they have a public space protection law for eliminating lewd and loud behavior in public spaces and have extended it to praying or counseling or protesting outside abortion clinics. She was only standing and praying silently She was arrested by police and taken to the station for interrogation. She says this not only violates her freedom of speech, but also her freedom of thought, since she was praying silently. We don't know all that this world is coming to. Praise God, we know who's coming to this world. (laughs) But... We could be coming into more and more times of persecution, even this side of the rapture and before the tribulation period. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were willing to pay a high price for their faith in chapter 3, and even being willing to be thrown into a burning, fiery furnace. And, uh, but there are some people today who are more and more taking a stand for our Lord in different ways. And... God help us all. Chapter 3 deals with the huge golden image and the burning fiery furnace. And we talked last week about how Nebuchadnezzar, after being given the interpretation of the dream of the huge metallic statue in chapter 2, and he was the head of gold, Babylon. But instead of continuing to honor God like he did at the end of the chapter, forgive me for saying this, he let the head of gold go to his own head. And he made an entire statue out of gold to himself. And he had this big orchestra playing and this loud herald making an announcement that when they hear the music, they're all to bow down and worship the golden image which Nebuchadnezzar had set up which towered 90 feet high and was nine feet wide. And so we'd like to pick up our narrative at that point, and we come to chapter 3 and verses 8 through 18. Daniel 3, verses 8 through 18. I do love reading the scriptures publicly, but I love it when our class does that too. And Wherefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came near and accused the Jews. See, they just had all the music play and these big crowds of people were bowing down to this pagan image. They spake, wherefore at that time certain Chaldeans came near and accused the Jews. They spake and said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. Thou, O king, hast made a decree that every man that shall hear the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbut, psaltery, and dulcimer, and all kinds of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoso falleth not down and worshipeth, that he should be cast into the midst of a burning fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom thou hast set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have not regarded thee. They serve not thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. 
Then Nebuchadnezzar, in his rage and fury, commanded to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar spake and said unto them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Do not ye serve my gods, nor worship the golden image which I have set up? Now if ye be ready, that at what time ye hear the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbut, psaltery, and dulcimer, and all kinds of music, ye fall down and worship the image which I have made well. But if ye worship not, ye shall be cast the same hour into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. What a challenging question this is for the chapter. And who is that God that shall deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. But if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. We asked this question earlier and got some feedback. I'd like to go into it a little bit more now. Where was Daniel during this time? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stood tall when everybody fell down in idolatrous compromise, and uh, they paid a price. But we have no reference to Daniel. Where was Daniel? At least four possibilities. Since Daniel was appointed to a higher office, chapter 2, verse 48, he may not have been required to attend this public gathering. It's interesting that when the king wants his second dream interpreted in chapter 4 and he gathers all of the wise men and all the counselors together, only after they fail does Daniel come in later. Having a special invitation, he wasn't included in that first gathering. So maybe he was um, not required to be part of that. Maybe a special exception. Or perhaps he may have been elsewhere in the empire carrying on official duties. Uh, I think that that's probably my favorite explanation. Uh, that's the one that uh, Dr. Coles teaches in his excellent uh, prophetic outline of Daniel. Here's another possibility. Maybe the astrologers did not dare accuse Daniel, who was present, and like the other three, did not bow down. Maybe he was so high up they didn't want to tangle with him or get him upset. Just a thought. Another possibility. Did Nebuchadnezzar spare Daniel in advance because he knew Daniel couldn't bow down? And the king certainly did not want to lose such a valued counselor and administrator. Of those four, I think that the idea that he was probably traveling on official government business is probably the best. There may be another explanation that is in the heart of God. It's much better than any of these, but we don't know it yet. But uh, these are four possibilities. But we know that Daniel stood true throughout his life. Now, when they're challenged by the king, I'll give you one more chance to bow down or we're going to throw you in the furnace. We have a very noble and notable answer by these three young men in verses 16 through 18. O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. This is not something we have to give a lot of thought to and figure out what we're going to do. Their commitment was clear for years. And when they came to a crisis, there was no question what they would do. We are not careful to answer thee in this matter. If it be so, God certainly can. And if he's pleased to, wonderful. If it be so, our God is able to deliver us out of the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king, one way or another, perhaps by martyrdom, we will get victory from you. But while God is able, if he chooses not to deliver us, I mean like in Acts 12, James was beheaded by 
Herod Agrippa I. But before Peter got executed, an angel miraculously rescued him from prison and he continued to live many years and have a fruitful ministry. And so God's able, but if not, if he chooses not to, our commitment is still clear. Be it known unto you, O king, that we will not serve your gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. Don't debate your convictions in a crisis. Dr. Rod Bell used to say, I've settled some things. As my old daddy used to say, drive down a stake, son. <laughs> there are certain things that should be clear and not open for debate in terms of where we stand. We are not careful to answer thee in this matter. And then we read in verses 19 through 27 what happened next. Then was Nebuchadnezzar full of fury, and the form of his visage was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Therefore he spake and commanded that they should heat the furnace, one, seven times more than it was wont to be heated. And he commanded the most mighty men that were in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their coats, their hosen, and their hats, and their other garments, and were cast into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, because the king's commandment was urgent and the furnace exceeding hot, the flame of fire slew those men that took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down bound into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king was astonished and rose up in haste and spake and said unto his counselors, Did not we cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? They answered and said unto the king, True, O king. He answered and said, Lo, I see four men loose, walking in the midst of the fire, and they have no hurt. And the form of the fourth is like unto the Son of God. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the mouth of the burning fiery furnace, and spake and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, ye servants of the Most High God, come forth and come hither. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came forth, of the midst of the fire. And the princes, governors, and captains, and the king's counselors, being gathered together, saw these men, upon whose body the fire had no power, nor was an hair of their head singed, neither were their coats changed, nor the smell of fire had passed on them. There was a dear youth pastor in our area some years ago. Some of you may know him, Brother Jerry Greco of Temple Baptist Church. <laughs> Brother Jerry said, you talk about reality TV. <laughs> you talk about three guys that got fired up. <laughs> <laughs> that was Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, when I read about him, Nebuchadnezzar, heating the furnace of fire seven times more than it would normally be heated. My thinking goes back to Elijah's three trenches. My thinking goes back to Elijah's three trenches. Do you see a connection? Remember there was this contest between Jehovah and the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel and the prophets of Baal though they pleaded and cut themselves and jumped all over the place, failed to um, call down fire from heaven upon their burnt sacrifice. That was Elijah's turn in the name of Jehovah to call down fire from heaven. For the contest was, let the God who answers by fire, let him be God. Amen. But before Elijah prayed, remember what he did? He had three trenches dug and they poured water over the sacrifice, and they kept pouring water over the sacrifice until it was drenched, and the three trenches were full of, full of water. Amen. And then the fire came down and devoured the sacrifice and the altar and licked up all the water in the trenches, and uh, it was a complete victory. And the people fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. In other words, Elijah said, let's make it harder. Prophets of Baal could not get their God to call down fire, but let's make it as hard as we can for Jehovah. 
and it'll still be EC4. Now, that takes my thinking to the resurrection. Uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, God delivered them from a furnace that was seven times hotter than normal. God can do that and receives even greater glory. But my thinking goes to the resurrection on Resurrection Sunday morning. Before Sunday morning, in Matthew 27, 61 through 66, the Jewish leaders come to Pilate and they say, that deceiver talked about he would rise from the dead after three days. And if his disciples come and steal away the body and the word gets out he was resurrected, things will be worse than ever. And we'll have more problems than before we executed them. And Pilate accommodated them. He said, you have your guard, you have your seal. And in the words of verse 65, I believe, though they were Pilate's words, I believe God was issuing a challenge to Satan. Pilate said to the Jewish authorities, remember, make it as sure as you can. Do all you can to make sure this tomb is well guarded so he doesn't get out, for whatever means. But on Easter Sunday morning, no problem. Up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph for his foes. He arose a victor from the dark domain and he lives forever with his saints to reign. He arose, he arose. Hallelujah. Christ arose. Or as Peter puts it on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2.24, whom God hath raised from the dead, having loosed the pains of death, for it was not possible that he should be holden of it. <laughs> Shadrach and the Meshach and Abednego wouldn't bow, verse 12. They wouldn't budge, verse 16. And they wouldn't burn. Verse 27, they would not bend, they would not bow, and as Nebuchadnezzar found out, they would not burn. Pharaoh found out that God's people couldn't be drowned. Nebuchadnezzar found out that God's people couldn't be burned. Darius found out that God's people couldn't be eaten. And Haman found out that God's people couldn't be hanged. Now, I find it interesting that when they were in the burning, fiery furnace, the only thing the fire burned was the ropes that bound them. And the only thing that was on fire was their heart for God. The only part that was on fire was their heart for God. A great reformer, John Calvin, had as the emblem of his life a burning heart in his hand raised toward heaven. I love that. Uh, I do admire the life of John Calvin. I'm not a Calvinist. I have some real reservations about that theology, but I do, I do admire the life of this man and what he accomplished in many ways. But the emblem of his devoted life was that of a flaming heart lifted up in his hand towards God, offering his heart to God with all of his heart. And the only thing that burned in that fire was their hearts of devotion to God. And the only thing the fire burned was the uh, ropes that bound them. And I think of that passage in Isaiah 43.2, and we're aware that the context there is that Isaiah is prophetically encouraging the Jewish people whom he sees will be living towards the end of the Babylonian captivity, and he wants to encourage them that he's going to bring them back to the land, and he's going to bless them again after they've uh, learned the lessons of the captivity. Uh, but in that context, he says in Isaiah 43.2, when thou passest through the waters... I will be with thee. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee. When thou walkest through the fire, 
Thou shalt not be burned, neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. We read in 327 that not even a single hair of their heads was singed. I think of what our Lord says in Matthew 10.30. The context is he's sending his apostles out on a preaching mission and talks to them about the danger that will be involved. But he says, but the very hairs of your head are all numbered, and I'm going to protect you, down to the very hair of your head. Are not two sparrows sold for a farthing, and yet one of them shall not fall to the ground without your father? But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear ye not, therefore, for ye are of more value than many sparrows. It is true, scientifically, that the average blonde has 120,000 hairs. The average brunette, 110,000 hairs. The average redhead, 90,000 hairs. Blondes have more hair than redheads, but redheads usually have a little bit thicker hair, so it all kind of balances out in the end. So we have a general idea about how many hairs are on a person's head, but what person would take the time to count every single hair on his head? Can you see a dear lady, maybe in her 50s, and she's uh, standing in front of the bathroom mirror in the morning, and she's concerned that she hasn't had any hair perish over the night. So she decides to count every single hair on her head. And she's really working at it. 208, 209, 210, 211. Uh-oh, I use hairspray, and these two hairs, or there's a three or four are sticking together, and while I separate them, I might lose count where I am and have to start all over again. I'll be in front of the mirror all day counting my hairs. And while she's trying to keep focused, her little granddaughter is pulling on her robe saying, Mama, Mama, make me breakfast. And she'll say, I can't make breakfast now. I'm going to lose my count. What person would get in front of the mirror and try to count every single hair on his or her head? And yet the Bible says God is so interested in you that he has every hair of your head numbered. And Greek scholars tell us that there's more involved here than what you might generally think. You and I might generally think God knows the total number of hairs on your head, which is true. But the idea in the Greek, I'm told, is that God has numbered every single hair that is on your head. Like 104, 2008, 90,007. Each one's got a number. Kind of reminds me when I was in pastoral ministry in Central North Carolina back in the 90s. We visited the home of uh, Brother Lewis and his wife Alice. And uh, Lewis had a hobby of uh, training thoroughbred hunting dogs to hunt rabbit. And uh, he had them in the back, kind of in a closed-in area, but they were in the yard. Some of them would wander out into the front yard, even into the street. And as my son Walter and I were going up to the door, there were dogs in front of the house and in the driveway and getting into the street some. I guess he had, oh, wow, well over 50 dogs. And my son said to me, I know the name of every one of Brother Lewis's dogs. I said, you do? He said, yeah. I was kind of taken back. And he said, yeah, that's number 14, that's number 16, that's number 18. Brother Lewis had, uh, uh, somehow he had the numbers right in the fur of the dogs. So you could know the actual number of the dog. Well, God has an actual number for every hair of your head. And as Matthew Henry well says, men count their coins, but not their hairs. Oh yes, men count their coins. They're very interested in how their money's doing. And that means people are interested in their welfare and in their wherewithal. But God not only knows how many coins you've got, God knows how many hairs you've got. You know what that means? That means God's more interested in you than you're interested in yourself. That means that there is no problem for God that's too big for his power. 
and there's no concern that you have that is too little for his love. He cares about you completely and in all things. I had a dear student back in the 1980s at Piedmont Bible College who preached a sermon on Daniel 3 entitled, The Man on the Inside. Did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? How come I see four men unbound? And the form of the fourth is like unto the Son of God. <laughs> the man on the inside. Three went in, said Brother Darrell, and only three came out. But Nebuchadnezzar saw four men inside the furnace. Jesus stayed inside the furnace, waiting for the next time you or I will be thrown into our burning, fiery furnace. The only thing that the furious flames burned were the ropes that bound them because they were bound together in the bundle of life Amen. with the very Son of God. The only thing that the furious flames burned were the ropes that bound them for they were bound together in the bundle of life with the very Son of God. The Lord either saves us out of the troubles or he is with us in the troubles. But lo, he is with us all the way, even unto the, as it could be translated, the close of the age, the end of the world. Thinking about the Gospel of Matthew just for a minute, isn't it interesting that the opening chapter says that Messiah's name would be Emmanuel, God with us. And the closing chapter where we have the Great Commission says, Lo, I am with you always. God with us. That's the great message of Christmas. The word made flesh dwelling among us. We beholding his glory. You see, in nature, we see a God who's above us. In the law, we see a God who's against us. But in the Gospels, we see a God who is with us. Emmanuel, God with us. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. And then in verses 28 through 30, then Nebuchadnezzar spake and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who have sent his angel and delivered his servants that trusted in him, and have changed the king's word. By the way, Nebuchadnezzar's word was law. But God used Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to change it. And yielded their bodies, that they might not serve nor worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree that every people, nation, and language which speak anything amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut in pieces and their houses shall be made a dunghill because there is no other God that can deliver after this sort. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. God loves men who prefer their soul before their body and will rather lose their lives than forsake their God. Now we come to chapter 4. And chapter 4 is all about Daniel's interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's second dream. Daniel's interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's second prophetic dream, the cutting down of the towering tree. By the way, what was Nebuchadnezzar's first dream? Remember his first dream in chapter 2? Yes, the, the multi-metallic image, right. Uh, Daniel interpreted that, and now there's a second prophetic dream. Nebuchadnezzar many believe, is giving his personal testimony in this chapter. 
That's the position that Dr. Coles takes in his fine prophetic outlines of the book of Daniel. And he says, I want to talk about the wonders and signs which the great God has done toward me. I was in my palace flourishing. I was at rest in my bed. Things were going great. And all of a sudden, I had this dream that uh, really got my attention, and I had to know what it meant, or uh, I couldn't rest content. My day would not flow as it should, and uh, the world would not be as it should be. I had to know what this dream meant. Called all my counselors in, they couldn't interpret it. Then I called Daniel. And Daniel was reluctant to interpret it. Not because he didn't know what it meant, but because he didn't wish some of these negative things to happen to his friend, the king. And he said, the interpretation be to your enemies. But Nebuchadnezzar said, tell me. I need to know. So Daniel then told them all. And he said, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, you know, described the dream. Uh, uh, he saw, I saw this huge tree whose height was to the heavens. It could be seen from the ends of the earth. It was full of wonderful leaves and fruit and shade. And the uh, animals received uh, meat from it. And the uh, birds uh, rested in its branches. And uh, then there was a watcher that came from heaven and said, cut down the tree and pull off the branches and, uh, and uh, destroy the leaves. And the tree was destroyed, but it said, keep the root, keep the root, and fasten it securely in the ground with an iron band. And uh, the king will be driven into the fields and uh, will eat grass like uh, an ox. And seven times will pass over him until he finally gets the message that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men and give of it to whomsoever he will. And so Daniel then interprets the dream for him and says, you're the tree. You'll be lifted up in pride. Since pride goes before destruction, God will have to judge you. And uh, you will for seven years be acting like a wild beast, utterly degraded after all of your pride. But when you finally come to yourself and to your God and know that the heavens do rule, then you'll be restored. And that's what the root in the ground represents. The tree will eventually grow again in God's time. And only after you have thoroughly learned your lesson in such a way as hopefully you'll never forget it again. And Nebuchadnezzar basically was given a 12-month trial of grace. Daniel said to him, I counsel you to uh, repent and uh, relieve the oppressed, be kind to the poor. There may be a lengthening of thy tranquility. God might postpone the punishment, maybe even eliminate it. But at the end of the year, Nebuchadnezzar was walking on his palace and he looked over Babylon which was a glorious city that he had a big part in building. And he said, is this not great Babylon, which I have made for my glory and the honor of my majesty? And as the king was still speaking, as the words were still in his mouth, a voice fell from heaven and said, unto thee it has now happened, O Nebuchadnezzar, you'll be driven from among men and you'll be with the wild beasts. And he was for seven years till you know that the heavens do rule. But finally, Nebuchadnezzar came to himself. His reason returned. And he praised the God of heaven and said, I now know that those who walk in pride, he's able to abase. That's kind of a quick summary of the chapter. Question. Is Daniel 4 Nebuchadnezzar's own personal testimony of salvation? Is chapter 4 Nebuchadnezzar's own personal testimony of salvation? You'll find good men who differ on that. What do you think? Good men and good women do differ on that. Yes, sir. I absolutely think it is. Why would they not think it is? Why would anybody differ? 
Well, you do have King Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 2, after the first dream was interpreted, talking about how great Daniel's God is. And at the end of chapter 3, he has a decree that uh, nobody should speak uh, evil against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So it's not like he did not have shining moments of insight, but then did not improve them and a gathering darkness returned. So some people would you know, take that into account. But some people, like Dr. Coles, believes that this time it really stuck. And uh, good men are divided on this, uh, but I'm inclined to believe, yes ma'am, In a more personal way. Yes. In, in the previous chapters, or like you said in chapter two, I can't find it right now, but I made a note of the comments he made. But I also wrote in the margin of this one in chapter, um, uh, where, yeah, I'm trying to see where I wrote the note, but I had made the note that this is the first time he actually praises God. So Directly. Yeah, he gives a decree in chapters two and three about. Uh, the God of Daniel, the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are great. Uh, honor them. Don't speak against them. But this seems more personal, doesn't yes. it? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Now, of course, sometimes people will make a good profession, but it turn out not to be sincere. Dr. Cole says, too often professions are made, but not meant in his writings. But uh, I think there's reason to believe, Sandy, that this profession was sincere, as Dr. Cole himself believes. The verbs praise, extol, and honor in verse 37 are active verbs in the Hebrew indicating continue action to suggest that he would continue to do this long afterwards, not just a one-time momentary, I was wowed. So I think that that is encouraging. And then also, he says, I want to tell about God's great acts toward me, verse 2. In other words, he seems to now be making it more personal. In 247, he talks about Daniel's God. In 328 and 29, he talks about the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But now it seems more personal. He wants to describe personally God's great wonders and signs, which he did in my life. And this inclines me to believe this could be uh, his own personal testimony of salvation and that there was a real change. Dr. Coles well writes, when a man gets saved, God not only changes his eternal destiny, but he also changes his internal thinking and his external behavior. The founder of our ministry at Tabernacle, Dr. Rod Bell, used to say, if Christ hasn't changed your life, he hasn't saved your soul. There's got to be some change if we're new creatures in Christ Jesus. The unchanged life is the unsaved life. We're saved by grace, but we're saved unto good works. There should be an evidence that a change has taken place. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And I realize some Christians will grow much uh, more effectively than others, but there should be some evidence of growth and change. Uh, their seed should remain in them uh, to, to show that they've been born of God. There was this little girl, I think it was in vacation Bible school, she got saved one night, and she came up to her pastor, Pastor Dylan, and she said, Pastor Dylan, 
I got saved tonight, now I can't be mean anymore. <laughs> and uh, there should be some evidence of a change, and I'd like to think there was in Nebuchadnezzar's life. Here's another question. What is the technical medical term for the mental illness Nebuchadnezzar suffered from in this chapter? What is the technical medical term? Anybody familiar with that? It's not an easy question. Yes, that's a good answer. Um, the general problem is a person who thinks he's some kind of an animal, and he, up to a point, acts like it and thinks he is. I think that particular term of lycanthropy uh, refers to somebody who thinks he's a wolf, but it's in that same general area. Uh, I think that very specifically what Nebuchadnezzar suffered from was boanthropy. That means ox man. He actually seemed to think he was an ox in the field. And uh, that's a rare form of mental illness, but they do have documented cases. Uh, one commentator, uh, R.K. Harrison, says he uh, visited a mental hospital in London, I think, or heard of a mental hospital in London where there was a man who exhibited those symptoms who was in that institution. Um, we'll talk maybe a little more about that a little later. Yes, ma'am. Interesting. And the school said it's okay as long as she doesn't disturb any of the other students. Uh -huh. I'm thinking, if I'm there working and somebody's crawling around like a cat, that would disturb me. Oh. <laughs> if I was a kid, I mean, that is That's a, very, very sad. It's, it's, it, that it's is a sad. Illness, I think. Like, yeah. That is sad. Very sad. There was a lady, uh, I don't know whether it was at a school board meeting or something who actually said she was a cat. And she said, you gotta treat me like a cat. But she was trying to make the point that just because a man says, I think I'm a man when he's really a, she's really a girl, or uh, she says, I'm a girl when it's really a man, that doesn't necessarily mean they're a man or a woman just because they say that. So she was saying, just because I say I'm a cat, doesn't mean I'm a cat. Uh, I mean, there, where, where does common sense come in here? I just happened to see that on the news some time ago. But yeah, what you're saying is really sad when somebody, a little girl, you know, thinks that she's a cat and acts like it, and they, they try to give her some space within reason. Yeah, that's rough. Another question. How did Nebuchadnezzar retain his throne during the seven dysfunctional years of his reign? There's some indication that near the end of his reign, uh, there's about seven years where there doesn't seem to be any activity on his very busy record. It's true that during that time there was the long 13-year siege of the city of Tyre, but a lot of that could have been done while his generals were taking care of that and he was back in Babylon. But there is a seven-year period near the end of his reign where no activity is reported, and some people think this could have been the seven years where he was out of commission in terms of being able to responsibly rule. But how did Nebuchadnezzar retain his throne during the seven dysfunctional years of his reign? He was acting like an animal. Uh, how could he be in charge of the kingdom? How did he retain his throne and eventually be restored to it, do you think? Yes, I think that's a big part of the answer. I think that Daniel's great influence uh, went a long way in helping uh, the king's authority to still be respected and uh, to hold out the hope that eventually, after seven years, he would be restored. Another interesting thing is people in the ancient world believed that it was bad luck to uh, mess with an insane person. They kind of thought that he was in some way possessed by the gods. So they might not have wanted to um, mess with him too much. Another thing is extreme royal seclusion. Sometimes kings were so secluded that they wouldn't come out that much in public, and so a lot of the people might not know what the state of affairs was because of the extreme royal exclusion. And then, of course, a very obvious answer is divine intervention. God just wonderfully worked it out that uh, he would get his throne back. We had a dear adjunct professor at Tabernacle some years ago, and uh, he also taught the auditorium Sunday school. As some of you may know him. He's with the Lord now, uh, Reverend Lee Dyson. 
but Reverend Dyson was teaching on this and he made this statement. He said, Nebuchadnezzar had to take humility 101 and he passed with flying colors. It took him seven years to get to the place of humility. How long does it take you and me? James 4.10 says, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up. And then in 4, 1 through 17, uh, we have uh, Nebuchadnezzar's dream and he relates it. I'd like to take time to read that, but I wanted to make a few comments. But in 4, 1 through 17, Nebuchadnezzar says, I want to testify of what God's done for me and uh, his great signs and wonders toward me. And uh, I had this dream and this is what it was and I didn't know what to make of it, nor did all my counselors and wise men. He says in verse 13 that a watcher came down from heaven and said, cut down the tree. A watcher is another name for an angel. Mike Baer in his Bible Doctrines for Today gives a list of names for angels in the Bible. I thought it was kind of interesting. He says they're called angels. That's the main word. That Hebrew word means messenger. They're called sons of God in Job 1 and 2. Holy ones, Psalm 89 and Daniel 4.13. They're called watchers, Daniel 4.13. They're called hosts in places like uh, Nehemiah 9.6. They're called mighty ones in Psalm 29.1, give unto the Lord, O ye mighty. They're called sons of the mighty in Psalm 89.6. They're called ministers in Psalm 103.21. And they're called ministering spirits in Hebrews 1.14. Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister unto them who shall be heirs of salvation? I love that verse. Now, they're called watchers in verse 13 from a Hebrew word, ir, I-R, which means awake or watchful. God's angels, being constantly alert, are always watching over human affairs as God appoints them to do so. I believe, and we are honored and challenged, I believe there are angels in our service tonight. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11.10, for this cause ought the woman to have power over her head because of the angels. She should show proper reverence in the worship services because the angels who say holy, holy, holy and cover their faces before a thrice holy God appreciate reverence and worship and they don't want women to do anything that would be irreverent or out of place. So I believe angels worship with us. The story is told of a dear minister who was up late Saturday night pouring over his message for Sunday morning. And his dear wife walked in, and this was not one of the dear lady's more shining moments. But his wife said to him, Honey, why do you work so hard on your sermon when there'll be so few people to come out tomorrow to hear it? And he said, Dear, there are going to be more there than you realize. I'm not just preparing for the people. I'm preparing for the angels who will attend. Well, it says seven times uh, we'll pass over Nebuchadnezzar. And I believe the seven times are probably seven years because seven days or months would have been inadequate for his hair to have grown the length of feathers. Verse 33. And in 725, time seems to mean years when it speaks of a time and times and, and half of time, a one-year unit a two-year unit and a half-a-year unit, because it's talking about the Great Tribulation or the last three and a half years of Daniel's 70th week. So I believe the times here would represent years, so seven times passing over them would be seven years. But the great purpose of the dream and the lesson is verse 17. This matter is by the decree of the watchers and the demand by the word of the holy ones to the intent that the living may know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men and giveth it to whomsoever he will and set up of over it the basest of men. God is supreme and sovereign. If you don't like the way God's running the world, you can do something about it. <laughs> you can leave and create a universe of your own. But as long as you're living in his world, you gotta play by his rules. You probably thought that the Democrats and Republicans put men in power, but no, God sets them up 
God removes them. In verse 17, says F.B. Meyer, we learn that no destiny is decided apart from the careful sifting of the celestial council chamber. How august is this concept of the matured judgment of heaven? In 1787, this is one of my favorite stories in history, the Continental Convention in Philadelphia is struggling to get a constitution. They were greatly helped in the war for independence, but now that they're trying to put a country together, there are all kinds of problems and the different representatives of states are arguing this and that, and it looked like the government was never gonna start. And then in one of the great moments in American history, Benjamin Franklin stands to his feet and gives what I believe is one of the greatest speeches in American history. And he ties it into Daniel 4. And he says, in the past, he addresses the moderator, sir. He said, we began these sessions in here with prayer and God blessed us and brought us through the revolution. Why have we stopped asking God's guidance? He proposed that they begin the sessions with prayer. And as part of his eloquent speech, he said, I have lived, sir, a long time. And the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth, that God governs in the affairs of men. If a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, is it probable that an empire can rise without his aid? And so we learn from verse 17 that God has a tendency of picking up a nobody to be a somebody, in front of everybody, excuse me, in front of everybody without consulting anybody. God has a tendency of picking up a nobody to be a somebody in front of everybody without consulting anybody. And ye see your calling, brethren, that not many wise, not many mighty, not many of noble birth are called, but God has chosen the weak things of this world and the foolish and the base things and the things that are not to bring the naught the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, which of God has made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. According as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord, says Paul in 1 Corinthians 1. Thank you for listening. If you have questions about your relationship with God or you would like to know more about the ministry of Good News Baptist Church, you can visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org or call us at 757-488-3241. We trust your heart was challenged as you listened, and we want to encourage you to share this message with others. May the truth of God's word be your guide as you strive to follow Christ and make him known to others.